Well, speaking of a dad and daughter, there's a story of a little girl who came to her father and asked him for a nickel. And the father searched his pockets. He didn't have a nickel. And I looked in his wallet, and all he had was a $20 bill. And he thought to himself, that's a lot of money, but his little girl had been good, so he decided to give her that $20 bill to put in her piggy bank. And the little girl said, oh, no, Dad, you don't understand. I want a nickel. To which the father replied, oh, no, honey, you don't understand. This is a $20 bill. This is a bunch of nickels. And the girl still wasn't getting it, so the father uh, tried to explain to her you know, how many nickels are in a dollar and how many nickels are in $20, but she still wasn't getting it. So after a long back and forth, the father decided to search the house until he finally found a shiny silver nickel, but wanted to give his daughter one last chance to choose between the $20 bill and the nickel. And y'all probably know where this is going, right? The girl chose the shiny silver coin. Now, if you're like me, when you hear that story, you think you, you kind of get frustrated, right? You think to yourself, man, if the, if the girl would have only trusted her father, she would have only listened to him, she would have received so much more than what she was after. So much more than what she settled on. She settled for a nickel when there was a 20 to be had. But folks, if we're honest, we see this happening every day in a spiritual sense, don't we? Our Father offers us so much more than what we're after, yet we settle for far less than what He intends. That is the issue with the Jewish Christian audience in the book of Hebrews. Remember, they were complacent. They had become complacent in their spiritual lives. They were beginning to look to and consider and settle on beliefs and teachings that were less than what is best. Some of those Jewish teachings and beliefs were, were not necessarily bad. At one point, they were, they were good, but they had become insufficient. But they were looking to, and they were considering re-embracing their old Jewish beliefs and practices, especially when it comes to their beliefs and practices about the Levitical priests and the priesthood under the Old Covenant. They were considering looking back to the priest and depending upon their work probably in addition to Jesus for a right standing with God which is bad right they thought they might be missing something with just Jesus and so they were looking beyond him they were turning away from him they were they were drifting from him spiritually and the writer of Hebrews writes this book to tell them basically don't do that don't look beyond Jesus don't turn away from Jesus. Don't drift from Jesus, but consider Jesus. Fix your gaze upon him and only him. Trust in his person and work alone for your salvation. Why? Because he's supreme. He's better. He's greater. Greater than what? Greater than everyone and everything else. We're going to talk more about that today. Surprise, surprise. We're in Hebrews talking about how Jesus is better. That's the main theme, right? If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 9. We are finishing out Hebrews 9 today. We're getting closer 
to finishing this book. Next week we'll be in double digits, all right? Or the, not next week, but uh, in a few weeks. We got something special for next week. Taking a little break. But we're going to be uh, looking at verses 15 through 28 this morning. And in this passage, the focus once again is upon God's greatest covenant. And what you're going to see in this passage today is that the author of Hebrews is saying in a bit of a different way what he has already been saying about this new and better covenant. He's very, very repetitive in this book, right? Or we could say God is repetitive through the writer of Hebrews in this book. And the reason why is because this truth about the priesthood of Jesus, get this, is essential to us understanding the Christian faith and the work that Christ came to accomplish. God really wants us to get this. He wants us to remember this. Repetition is the key to learning. So what God does throughout his word, but especially in Hebrews is, he repeats truths like summary statements throughout the book. Some of y'all know that I'm back in school once again. The last time I was in seminary was 2006. It's been a while. I'm a glutton for punishment. And uh, something we, we do a lot of in seminary is we read and we write. And I am reading a lot of books, a lot more in the doctoral program than the master's program, a lot more books. And with each book I've got to read uh, each week, I've got to give a, uh, a book review at the end of the week. And one of the, the many things I have to do in that book review is I have to provide a summary of the book in just a few short paragraphs. It's one of the more difficult things, believe it or not, that I have to do because when I'm reading a, a really good book, especially a book that's 500 pages or longer with lots of great content, it's very, very difficult to summarize in just a few paragraphs. I have to decide what's primary and what is secondary. I have to really pinpoint and highlight the main point of the book and explain it in a few words, and that, that can be difficult. But writing summaries are helpful because it helps me to recall what's in the book, to remind me what's in the book. Same is true in Scripture. And for that reason, God gives a lot of summaries throughout His Word. And we especially see that in Hebrews. There's a lot in Hebrews, right? Let's just be honest. There's a lot here and so God, through the author of Hebrews, gives us a lot of summaries so that we'll remember. In this passage, we're going to break down this morning. Though there are some additional points made by the author, we are going to hear him make some points that he's already made. But the fact that they're mentioned again, listen, doesn't mean God wants you to gloss over it. Say, oh, I've already heard this for the past two months, you know? I'm just going to move on. I'm going to tune out. God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to hear these truths and receive them once again. In this passage, the writer of Hebrews continuing to explain the superiority of the new covenant. And he does so in this passage by sharing several wonderful features about this new covenant that makes it better than the old. Notice the first is the supreme mediator of the new covenant. That's one of the superior features. The mediator 
of the new covenant. And who is the mediator of the new covenant? Jesus, Sunday school answer, right? See, I told you it's going to be easy. Look at verse 15. He says, therefore. Now let's stop there for a minute. Remember the rule with therefore. It happens a lot in scripture. You come across this word. Whenever you come across this word in your Bible reading, you have to answer the question, what the therefore is there for, okay? And it's a connecting word. It takes us back to what's been previously said. Remember last week, the passage we looked at, we were talking about how Jesus is a better priest associated with the better covenant. And we learned from that passage, one of the reasons why is because he serves in a better sanctuary than the priest of old. Jesus serves in a heavenly temple, within the heavenly veil, in the heavenly holy of holies. And the service that he renders there is better. Christ sacrificed the shedding of his blood, the laying down of his own life, offering himself up without blemish to God. Through that act, we're able to be cleansed from sin completely if we trust in him alone for our salvation. We're not just cleansed outwardly to participate in ceremony. Christ's work cleanses us inwardly, saves us completely, secures us permanently. So the writer of Hebrews in verse 15 says, Therefore, in light of this great work, he, Jesus, is the mediator of this new covenant. Now, some of y'all know what a mediator is, right? It's a person who goes between two parties to reach an agreement, help the two parties reach an agreement, or to settle a dispute. In the scriptures, a mediator is one who goes before God on man's behalf. And most throughout most of the, the Old Testament, it's the priest, right? Before the priests, God appointed special people. He appointed Abraham to serve as a mediator. He appoints Moses to serve as a mediator. But not one of those mediators could conquer sin, could accomplish the work of salvation, right? Could usher God's people into the presence of God and secure them there forever. Only Jesus has done that, which is why we say that he is our supreme mediator. We're told in verse 15, because of Jesus, those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that, underline this last phrase, redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But listen, because this death has occurred, because Jesus has laid his innocent life down and offers his righteous life up in exchange for our sinful one, we're told those whom God calls... Those who trust in Christ alone for salvation receive the promised eternal inheritance. In other words, they are saved and secure in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone in Him alone. Now, notice that last phrase again. Redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Now, let me ask you this. Who committed transgressions who sinned under the first covenant we learn here through the accomplished work of jesus that god redeems 
through Christ, those who fell short of God's standard, those condemned sinners from the Old Testament who looked to God and trusted in his future promises of a Messiah to come under that first covenant. That's amazing. Get this. The salvation Christ accomplished at Calvary not only works forward, it works backwards. You see that? We have seen this before and we'll continue to see this through our studies through the New Testament. How were people in the New Testament saved? Through the shed blood of Jesus. How were people in the Old Testament saved? Through the shed blood of Jesus. Because Christ died, he redeems transgressors under the first covenant, Old Testament sinners, through the work he accomplished at Calvary. MacArthur said it like this. Look at this quote. He says, It is the sacrifice of Christ that not only that, not only that redeems from now on, but that goes all the way back and covers redemption for everybody who's ever lived and who has believed throughout all time. That's what Jesus has done. He's better. In the Old Testament, there were believers who trusted in God's, God's future promises. They were looking forward in faith to a Messiah to come, and they were saved. We've said this before on credit. We've used that illustration before. When sacrifices were offered up by the Old Testament priest, it was like swiping a credit card. They kept swiping it and swiping it and swiping it, and then Christ comes and he pays the debt in full forever. See how that works? Think about this. Every time a sacrifice was made, for sins in the Old Testament. That was meant to remind God's people, number one, the consequence for sin is death. The scene at the tabernacle and later at the temple, it was a bloody scene, constantly. They went by and they would just see this bloody scene. And that, that blood was to remind them that a, a death has occurred. And a death has occurred because of sin. And that continual bloody scene was meant to remind God's people that the debt had not yet been paid. It was also to serve as a picture of Christ who came and laid his life down. Go back up to verse 12. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of blood uh, of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. His work, Christ's work as our great high priest, our great mediator, is one of the key features in this new covenant that makes this covenant God's greatest covenant. Remember the old highlighted the problem of sin, the consequence of sin, the need for salvation, but could not provide the remedy. Christ alone is that remedy. Notice the second key feature that piggybacks off the first, the precious blood of the new covenant. Look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. Verse 17. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Very helpful illustration that really helps us today understand what it cost Christ 
to initiate this new covenant. He uses the illustration of a will here. Y'all know what a will is, right? We, we write up wills, and what we say in those wills is, is what we're saying in writing is what will happen to our assets after death. But nothing happens with that will until what? Until you die. Until a death has occurred. And just like one leaves behind an inheritance to friends and family when they die, Christ does the same. He has established this new covenant with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit in eternity past. That's what we call the covenant of redemption. He has established this. And through his death, he has activated this new covenant. And through his death, he has left us, all of us who trust in him alone for salvation, an eternal inheritance through his death. Great illustration, isn't it? So it takes the death of the testator to activate the will. Same is true in this new covenant. This covenant also is not a plan B. God's plan from the beginning, right? We have said God goes to great lengths to show his people that the old covenant throughout the Old Testament was meant to be temporary. The new covenant had been decided on in eternity past, but it was not activated until Christ came and laid his life down. That's why when Christ died, God took his finger in the temple and tore the holy veil away. From top to bottom, right? That's why there was an earthquake and, and the, the ground shook and the rocks broke. God is showing this is an earth-shattering, life-changing event. Through Christ, the veil has been torn away. Access to God is now available through Christ alone, through the work that he accomplished at Calvary. Look at verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's showing some consistency here. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. So notice here, the writer of Hebrews, he does this all throughout the book. He's taking his audience once again back to the Old Testament, and he's showing some more consistency between these two covenants. He said in verses 16 and 17 that the new covenant was initiated with blood. That's the blood of Jesus, right? Well, here in verses 18 through 20, the, the author of Hebrews says again that the old covenant was also inaugurated with blood. Blood. This passage is taken from Exodus 24. In this chapter, God and his people are entering into this covenant relationship known as the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, that's in view here in the book of Hebrews. And there are several promises made on both sides. And as you know, God remains faithful on his side, as he always does, but man does not. But there is a covenant that is made between God and man. And there is also this covenant-making ceremony that took place in Exodus 24 at the foot of Sinai. And at this ceremony, there was bloodshed. Animals were sacrificed. 
and there was blood sprinkled on the altar. We're told also on the people and on the book. That is God's book of these laws given to Moses and this covenant that God made with man. It's a bloody scene at the foot of Sinai. This also continued to be the practice of the priest throughout this old covenant, under this old covenant. Look at verses 21 and 22. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. So not only was there a bloody scene at the foot of Sinai, but also wherever the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, was erected, it was a bloody scene, and later at the temple as well. Remember, the priests were put in place by God in their work outside this tent, and in this tent, they offered sacrifices outside, and, and blood would be sprinkled within, right? And we're told that... that, that all of the vessels and everything was sprinkled with, with blood. He says, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. Why? Why was blood shed? Why were these sacrifices offered at Sinai? Why was the altar sprinkled and the people sprinkled and the, the book of the covenant sprinkled with blood? Why was blood shed again and again outside the tabernacle and later the temple and sprinkled on the, on the mercy seat annually within the most holy place? Why was blood shed at all? Because of sin. It goes all the way back to the beginning. When man fell, sin separates, sin alienates. Therefore, for man to live in a relationship with God, blood has to be shed once again. The consequence for sin is death. Therefore, for man to be forgiven, for man to be restored to God, God has set this up for blood to be shed for that to happen. He says at the end of verse 22, look at it. Clear as day, without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And get this, not just any blood could be shed, right? The blood of the old covenant was the blood of animals, and that was never meant to cut it. The author of Hebrews makes it clear in this book that that's the case. It was meant to be a reminder to God's people that they were in need of a right kind of substitute, a, a perfect substitute, the right sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice to shed blood on their behalf if they're going to live in right relationship with God. And again, these sacrificial animals killed over and over again were just meant to show that the consequence for sin is death. And the fact that they're offered over and over again was meant to show that that sin debt had not yet been paid was also, though, meant to point them toward their need for a perfect sacrifice to come. And how was salvation made available to us? By God coming down to us, by becoming one of us, by shedding his blood on our behalf in our place. God the Son has done that. And that blood that Jesus shed, get this, it was precious because it was pure and perfect. It was shed by the purest man, the perfect man, the God-man. It was shed by the perfect Passover lamb, the blood of God's man, the Messiah, our high priest, God's great king. It was his blood that was shed. And it's only through that sacrifice, trusting in that work, that you can be saved. 
cannot enter into God's presence through your own filthy works. You cannot be saved by being a model citizen, a loving husband and wife, a committed parent. You cannot enter in by going to church, teaching Sunday school, leading a small group, giving 10% of your income away to the church. The only way to be saved, the only way to enter in to God's presence is through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It's why we sing the songs we sing. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stain. Only through Jesus are we washed clean. Only through Jesus are we forgiven. Only through Jesus are we restored to God. The blood he shed was precious and pure. The sacrifice he made, get this, was sufficient and final. That's our next point. The next Superior feature of the new covenant, the sufficient and final sacrifice of the new covenant. The fact that another priest had to come and a sufficient sacrifice had to be made showed the old system and the old sacrifices were insufficient. They were never meant to cut it. That's the point the author of Hebrews has made again and again, and he's going to repeat it here. Look at verse 23. Thus it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So we learn again here it was necessary for these rites to be performed under the old system because the priest and the people, they had to be purified. But we learned last week that this was just an outward act and an outward cleansing with an outer outward purification that took place we're told back in verse 13 the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer how many of y'all would like that to be to be cleansed be sprinkled with the ashes of a of a heifer i don't think we have any volunteers for that right but they go through great lengths to do that but look it, it only provided purification of the flesh it's just an outward purification. I said last week, the Old Covenant, as weak as it was, it did have some good points. We learn in verse 13, again in verse 23 of Hebrews 9, that the sacrifice of goats and bulls and the old Jewish rituals of purification, they had their positive through these acts, one who had been defiled, one who had been cut off from worshiping the true God with his people could be allowed again in again to participate in ceremonies of worship but the problem is they could be defiled and separated once again from God and his people and even when they were restored in that state of restoration there was still great separation because only the priests could enter into the holy place and all but one were unable to enter into the most holy place. Only the high priest could enter in there once a year and he had to get in and get out quickly. You see, insufficient. Because that was the case, man was in need of another priest from another priesthood who serves in a better temple, who has the desire and the ability to truly save, who is willing and able to save folks that priest has come in the person of jesus we also see here like we see throughout the bible like we've talked about already today and throughout this series he was not the backup plan he was not plan b 
We're told in verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies, underline copies, that's what the old system was, the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites. The old system, the old priest, and the old tabernacle and temple were copies of the real. They pointed toward, they were pictures of a true and better priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who serves in a true and better heavenly temple. He says, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Amen? Talked about this at length already, but just in case you haven't gotten it yet, I'm going to give it to you again because the writer of Hebrews gives it to us again. Christ is a true and better priest. Y'all know that by now, right? Hopefully. If you've been here with us, you know that. He is our supreme priest who, unlike the priest of old, addressed our sin problem and our need for salvation the priest of old did that christ actually provided a solution to our sin problem he accomplished our salvation and how did he do it he did it at calvary right but he also did it by entering into not an earthly temple an earthly and physical temple into an earthly and physical holy place through an earthly and physical veil into an earthly and physical holy of holies to sprinkle the blood of an earthly and physical sacrifice on an earthly and physical mercy seat. Christ passed through the heavens for us into the heavenly temple, into the heavenly holy place, through the heavenly veil, into the heavenly throne room of God, into God's presence... And he offered the perfect sacrifice himself. And he has done that on our behalf so that we, through faith alone in him alone, can go in with him, with Christ, through him, into the presence of the one true and living God. Isn't that great? And how often does Christ do this for us? Do you have to go in again and again every day? Annually? How many times? Once. Once. He reminds us of that again and again in this book too, right? Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly. He's talking about Jesus here since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, underline end of the ages, we're going to return to that, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Christ did not have to repeat this work, did he? He did it once. He laid down his life, took his life up again, entered into God's presence, stayed there, and we're told that he anchors us there. Those of us trusting in him, he anchors us there. Our hope is anchored within the veil in the heavenly holy of holies with Christ. And the author of Hebrews uses some great logic here. Notice, he says, if Christ had to repeat this act again and again for mankind, he would have had to suffer from the very beginning from adam and eve up until today he would have had to die all throughout history he would have had to suffer repeatedly he says since the foundation of the world he would have had to work daily 
like the priest of old from the very beginning, but he didn't have to do that. The work that Christ accomplished at Calvary over 2,000 years ago was a one-time sufficient act for all time. It was a one-time sufficient act for all time. And folks, not just to make our, not trying to make our heads hurt too much, but listen, only an eternal God can pay for the sins, past, present, and future, forever, in one afternoon at Calvary. Christ is God the Son. Only, only God can do that. Jesus has done that for us. Albert Moeller, in his commentary on Hebrews, says this. Look at this quote. This is a great quote. Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His offering is so superior, it doesn't need to be repeated year after year, and it renders all further offerings obsolete. This is yet another way Jesus supersedes the priests of old. He's better. Better in every way. He is a true and better priest associated with the true and better covenant. And one of the reasons why is because of his sacrifice in connection with this covenant. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, is a sufficient and final sacrifice that takes away sin, past, present, and future forever to all those who believe. Christ, once for all, has appeared, get this, at the end of the ages. Do you know we're living in the end times? You probably hear that a lot, right? But we are. We are. We're told in Scripture that we are. We have been for 2,000 years. John says in 1 John 2, 18, Children, it is the last hour. James 5, 8, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There have been lots of ages throughout biblical history. The age when Satan fell. The age when Adam sinned. The age when God destroyed the earth by flood. The age when God spoke at Sinai. The age of the prophets and kings. But it was Jesus who ushered in the last age at Calvary. And we are in the end times waiting for that last act to happen, which is Christ's return. The apostles in the New Testament and others in Christ's church expected Jesus' return at any moment, and we are still there awaiting the return of our Lord. And folks, though a lot of time has passed, listen to me, mark this down, ingrain this in your minds and in your hearts, just as sure as he came the first time, he is returning. He is. That leads us to our fourth and final feature quickly. The terrible judgment and great deliverance of the new covenant. This new and better covenant not only speaks of a Messiah who has come and who has returned to the right hand of the Father on high, but one who is coming again in glory. Look at verses 27, 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, he's already dealt with sin at the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So 
Christ came initially to deal with sin. He came from heaven to earth to become one of us, to live the perfect life in our place and lay that perfect life down, conquer sin and death through his death and resurrection. The writer of Hebrews says, just as it is appointed for man to die once. Now listen, something you need to get here, we learn here, death is not some sort of cosmic accident here, right? It's also not a natural process of this world. We often speak of death as if it's just as natural as living, but that is not the way God initially set things up. It wasn't death at first. Death comes as a result of sin. This is not what God intended when he first created everything, put his stamp of approval on it, said it's very good. God has appointed death as a result, as a consequence for sin. Because man's sin... God appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Judgment is coming for those who die in their sin and they reject the Lord Jesus Christ. But just as God appointed for man to die, get this, he has also appointed for Christ to die once to bear the sins of many. That's the gospel. Though because of our sin it has been appointed for us to die God has appointed for Christ to die once to bear the sins of many. That's the gospel. And when that work was accomplished, Christ returned to God's right hand. But we are told here, as we're told throughout the New Testament, that Christ is returning. He will appear a second time, not like the first, to deal with sin again, Sin's already been dealt with at the cross. He is coming to save those who are eagerly waiting for him, to save those trusting in him. That's us, believers. And some of y'all hear that and you think, well, I thought I've already been saved. Well, that's true. Scripture speaks of salvation in the past, present, and future. We have been saved, but we are being saved right now. We're growing in godliness. That's referred to as salvation as well. And we will be saved when Christ returns. And the first guarantees the second and the third. If we've truly been saved in the past, we will grow in godliness and we will be saved when Christ returns. And when he returns, we're told, those of us trusting in him, eagerly awaiting his return, pursuing godliness, growing in godliness, will be forever changed. We'll be made right in every way. We'll be like Christ. We'll be delivered from this broken life and broken world. We'll be ushered in to eternal communion with God and his people forever. Are you ready for that day? Scripture tells us that that day is coming, but we don't know when that day is going to come. It's coming someday, and that someday might be today, so we got to be ready. Are you ready? Have you forsaken your sin? Have you given your life up and over to Jesus? Scripture is crystal clear that Christ is returning to judge and to save. You will either stand before him in judgment and be condemned, or you will stand with him in faith and be saved. I urge you to choose the latter. While you have time today, right here, right now, if you have not, Forsake your sin. Turn from your sin. Give your life up and over to Jesus today and be saved. Let's pray.